And I met a guy, God, I met a guy who said, let's go do this adventure race. And I went and did it and I fell in love with it. And I said, I got to do something even harder. What's harder than this? And he said, well, you could do a 24 hour race, but you got to really be trained for that. You've got, and I said, sign me up. We're doing 24 hours. And after 24, I said, what's harder than this? listening to the Born Primitive Podcast. All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Born Primitive Podcast uh, here with my co-host, Big Tone. Good morning, Tony. And um, we are really excited for today's guest. Um, I know I've said that before, um, but the individual on today's podcast comes with an extremely unique background um, that uh, is, you know, proven track record of success in multiple disciplines. Uh, founder of and CEO of Spartan, the world's leading endurance sports brand. Uh, prior to that, he built a multi-million dollar pool business, hustling in high school and college. Went to Wall Street, started a trading firm. That wasn't enough. Moved to rural Vermont, set up a bed and breakfast, a farm and a general store. Oh, and in, in addition to that, um, is a, a very accomplished endurance athlete, having done 50 ultra events, he did 14 Ironmans in a single year, decided to run part of the Iditarod on foot over 500 miles, and uh, completed the Vermont 100, the Badwater 135, and an Ironman all in seven days. So there's a lot of ways we can go with this. Um, without further ado, uh, we are honored to have Joe DeSena join us on the Born Primitive Podcast. Good morning, Joe, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, and thanks for having me. So, Joe, I, I want to jump right into I, I was intrigued. I saw the clip on Rogan, which congrats on getting on there. That's pretty awesome about you talking about starting up your pool business kind of by a fluke that your neighbor was like a mob boss. And he uh, kind of taught you some some life lessons and that, you know, kind of got the pool hustle going. Um, and then, you know, I understand uh, you ended up you know moving to Wall Street um, and starting a trading firm. And eventually, you know, getting out of the city and going to, you know, Vermont, which is a complete deviation from, you know, of course, uh, you know, Wall Street. So just walk us through all that, you know, however you want to go with it, um, and uh, and get us get us to to Vermont. Yeah, no problem. So um, grew up in Queens, New York. If you saw the movie Goodfellas, grew up Ground Zero for where that where that movie takes place, where that real life story that gets depicted in the movie takes place. Uh, directly across the street from the Varios, um, you remember a scene in Goodfellas uh, where they where they're introducing Peter and Paul and Peter and Paul and Peter and Paul. There's lots of Peter and Pauls in that family. They were they were across the street from us. Everybody in the neighborhood uh, was either Italian or Jewish. Everybody hustled. Everybody was up early. Everybody was getting after it. They were either getting after it, doing bad things, or you know running a business or doing cement work or running a a steel literally, uh, you know, working on the Brooklyn Bridge, et cetera. So I don't know, you either got sucked up into it, into that mindset, or you got left behind. My mom in 72, 73, her mom gets cancer, my grandmother, and my mother's looking for a different way, a solution to save her mother. She goes into a health food store, probably the only health food store on the entire East Coast at that point, you know, incense is burning, they've a lot more crunchy than than a Whole Foods today. And there happens to be a yogi that just landed at JFK Airport from India that came into the health food store. I don't know, he's 70 something years old. He's an older gentleman. 
my mom starts talking to him because she's seeking this different lifestyle. And he convinces her right there on the spot that eating raviolis and sausage and peppers and, you know, ganolis and smoking cigarettes, it's an unhealthy life. And here's all the damage it's doing. And if you want to save your mom, you're going to have to turn your life upside down, start meditating, start doing yoga, um, drink, drink more water, uh, become a vegan and uh, give up the cigarettes, the alcohol. So she does a 180 degree pivot that day, walks into the house. I remember walking into the house with my grandfather that day. We probably went to ANS pork store and brought home some sausage and peppers. And my mother threw them out, uh, threw my grandfather out of the house, her father. And, um, and that was the, you know, the beginning of the change. My parents ultimately got divorced. I didn't really want any part of it. I mean, monks started hanging out in our living room. We had, you know, chanting going on pictures of people with beads that didn't look like my family on the wall incense was it was just it was very very weird my friends weren't accepting of it i wasn't accept i didn't want any part of it that particular yogi goes on to start with him and his comrades this this event that takes place even today called the transcendence run in queens it's a foot race around a one mile loop and it goes on for over 3,000 miles. You just go around and around and around in circles. And so, again, I got introduced to that craziness at, at a young age. Like, uh, my mother started running 10 miles a day. And, and I thought it was all stupid because I wanted a Cadillac. I wanted to be with those tough guys. I wanted to make money. I didn't want any of this. And, and who wants to eat celery and branch sandwiches at that, right? Like, you don't understand any of this as a kid. So... I was fighting to get with my dad. My mom was pushing this lifestyle. My mother eventually moved to Ithaca, New York, and she dragged my sister and I to Ithaca. Ithaca was much more forgiving for this lifestyle, a lot, a lot more crunchy in Ithaca. You had a lot of college professors. You had a lot of open minds. Uh, but I had to get back to the neighborhood. I wanted to be with dad. I wanted to be with my friends. I wanted Chinese food. I just, I did not want any part of it. So... I fought to get back and forth. And most summers I would spend entirely with my dad. My neighbor, my father's neighbor was the head of the banana organized crime family. And within a half mile, there were four of the family bosses, all the families we read about, we saw in movies, all lived within you know, a half mile, mile radius of that house. He sees the, the craziness going on in my household and he brings me over on um, preteens and says, why don't you clean my pool? Show up on Saturday, eight o'clock. I'll pay you $35 to clean the pool. Sounded like a good deal. I kind of knew, I don't remember what was going on in my mind when I was you know, 11, 12 years old, as far as really understanding what being the boss meant, but I knew his house was big. I knew a lot of people showed up there every day, bringing potentially food into the house. I later found out a lot of it was gold bars. I, I kid you not. And, and so I showed up to clean the pool. And I didn't know what I was doing. And he sat me down and he said, listen, he said, if you're going to clean the pool, you got to go. Number one, you got to show up on time. You know, if I tell you to be here at eight o'clock, get here at 745. Number two, you got to go above and beyond. I not only want you to clean the pool, but you should straighten up the lawn furniture, straighten up the shed, clean the windows if you have to, even though you're not getting paid for that. And then number three, never ask for money. You'll get paid if you do a good job. And again, I'm, I'm, 
I'm, you know, toeing the line. Yes, sir. And he helped me build this business, which eventually, you know, turned into a, a sizable business. I had about 700 customers, three or 400 of them were people like him, not necessarily the boss, but there were a bunch of bosses in there that I became very good friends with over the years and, and learned a lot from as crazy as that sounds. Anybody normal would say, what, what, what could you possibly learn uh, from these guys? And I'm just lucky that I stayed, you know, on the straight and narrow and, but also got the benefit of learning, you know, some of those uh, life lessons from, from these guys. Fast forward, I'm going back and forth to Ithaca. I'm starting to make money. Can't wait to graduate high school and just do this full time. I'm now getting into construction. I'm hanging out with wise guys. Everything's going my way. I got to get away from mom, away from the yoga, away from the meditation and just go full steam ahead on being you know, one of these guys. And a friend of mine in Ithaca that I'm graduating with says to me, his dad was a professor at Cornell. He says, we're, we're three months from graduation, seniors in high school. He says to me, well, why don't we go to Cornell University, which is in Ithaca, New York. And I said, how the hell would we go to Cornell University? So my dad's a professor, he'll get us in. And that made sense to me because of the neighborhood I was from. Everybody had a connection. I go, okay, your, your dad's gonna get us in, that's interesting. So we went for interviews at Cornell and the interviews went really well. And I felt badass, you know, I put on a suit, went to an Ivy League school. This was unbelievable. My dad was proud. Neither of us got accepted. So I was, I was back on my track. I'm going to go back to the neighborhood. I don't need to go to college. And my friend said, hang on a second. My dad told me we can go extramurally to uh, Cornell. We could take three classes each. The kids that get accepted take five classes. If we do well, there's a good chance to let us in. So I thought about that and I said, okay, when I go to Queens this summer to run my business, I could go take a couple of classes at St. John's University in between running my business so that I'm not behind because I'm only taking three classes, everybody else taking five. I could learn how to study, I could level up. And so that's what I'll do. I said, why don't we do that, John? Why don't you come to Queens with me, help me run my business. We'll both go to St. John's. And he said, no way. He said, if we've got to buckle down in the fall, he said, I'm going to UNLV. I'm going, I'm going to go out to Vegas and party all summer. And then I'll buckle down when I, I get back. And, and that was my first introduction to this concept of like delaying gratification. Like, I, I don't understand. We've got, a, we've got work to do. We want to get into this school. I'm going to do everything I can to get in. And, and, and he wanted to go have fun. So anyway, we met back at Cornell in September. We both signed up for, for three classes macroeconomics, business management, and psych, psych 101. We hustled. I think I got two A's and a B, which like I might as well have been a rocket scientist to get two A's. You know, my, my grades had never been that good in high school. And, but I worked, I worked and I dressed well every day and I had a little briefcase and I took it seriously, you know? And I had, and I had done the summer classes at, at St. John's. So I had leveled up, I had, you know, practiced studying. And we both reapplied that December, January, and neither of us got in again. And I was a bit devastated, but I'm a, I'm a glutton for punishment. So my mind immediately went towards, well, I'm just going to do it again. 
I'm just going to, I'll just reapply. You know, I'll do, I'll do another semester this way. I'm embarrassed to tell people I didn't get in. So I, I got to stay in the school somehow. He tapped out. He, he decided to go to UNLV. He had so much fun in Vegas that summer. He went out there. I stuck with it. I didn't get accepted again. I did it again and again. I think I was in my fourth semester and I was done. I, they had finally broke. Everybody breaks at some point, everybody. And, and I was starting to break and I was justifying in my mind why it would be better just to go around my business in Queens. And my mom, who did not want to lose her son, at some point, kids leave. You know, now I'm, I'm a parent. You don't want to lose your, your child. So she said, you know, I teach yoga to this professor at Cornell. Do you mind grabbing lunch with her before you decide to pack it in? And I thought, there's no way my mom's got it any real connections but you know out of respect for my mom i'll i'll go have this meeting and i sit down with professor anita racine i remember her day she changed my life and she said i see your grades you've got good grades i i see that you're you know you're interested you're hustling whatever she said do you like textiles and i didn't even know really what a textile was at that point and she said because I have this department of textiles that I run at Cornell and we have 93 women in the department and no men. And we're looking for some diversification. I said, I love textiles. I said, <laughs> How do I get in on some textiles? And, and she ultimately accepted me into the program. And I studied, I studied the, the business of, of the textile industry, the science of textiles, the design of textiles. And it was awesome. And if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. I graduated on time and it, it changed my life forever. As soon as I started making some money, real money out of school, I donated some money to that department because it was it was life changing. From there, I immediately went back to the neighborhood to run my business. And I really wasn't doing anything with that degree because I was making money. You know, I didn't want to give up. Now I had I had some heavy equipment. Big, you know, big bulldozers, um, bobcats, um, excavators, trucks. One of the one of the bosses who's still in jail now gave me a piece of land on the main strip in our neighborhood. So I built a building and I was just feeling like, you know, I had arrived. I, I graduated an Ivy League school. I'm running my business. And a guy that I met at Cornell during that four year stint who was Italian who was, who was working in Utica with a bunch of unions, took a liking to me, just the same way my neighbor took a liking to me. He said, why, why aren't you going to Wall Street? He stayed in touch with me after I graduated. Why aren't you going to Wall Street? And I said, I don't really know anything about Wall Street. I said, I, I know the 87, 1987 crash. I assume nobody's making money there anymore. I got this business in Queens. He said, you need to go across the river. You need to get to Wall Street. And I blew him off. My business was growing. I was having a lot of fun. I was with all these guys I wanted to be with. And he called me every month, month after month after month. Al Capucci is his name. He said, every month, like literally at clockwork, he said, do you get to Wall Street yet? Al, I appreciate the call. I love the fact that you're looking out for me, but, but I'm not going. Well, about four years later, so 1994, 48 months in a row of him calling me, he said, I'll tell you what, I want you to buy this stock. The name of the stock is called Syntex. It's a drug company. I said, Al, I don't, I don't really have time for stocks. I don't have an account. 
and he, and he pressured me. And that day, I was going to pick up money from a customer that owed me a couple hundred thousand dollars. I had rebuilt their house. And although it was stupid, but because I learned that lesson from the original boss, I wouldn't ask for money. I would lay out all the money to do all the work and then expect a check at the end. Not, not a great methodology because there were times people couldn't pay. You know, you, you let the bill go too long. But this, this family, Eli Novick, Novak, Novick was his name. He was a pharmacist. And I showed up at his house. I was going to pick up this check, a very large check. And I said, my friend told me to buy this stock, Syntex. It's a drug, drug company. I know you're a pharmacist. What do you think of it? And he was towel drying his hair. And he goes, oh, my God, sit down. He goes, I can't believe it. He goes, I, I was just thinking in the shower, I'm going to buy like 10,000 shares. And I thought, wow, that's strange, right? There's lots of stocks to buy. It's odd that this guy sits me down, puts me on the phone with a broker, talks me into putting all my money that he's giving me into this particular security, Syntex. The next day, it gets taken over the company. The next day. And my, my friend up in Ithaca had no inside information. He, just, he was just a really good tape reader. And I made $100,000 in a day. And I thought, I got to get to Wall Street. This, this uh, cement and cleaning pools and all this, this is for the birds. <laughs> I got to give this thing up. So I looked around, like literally three days later, and I thought, who am I going to sell this thing to? Funny enough, for a moment, I almost sold it to the boss that got me started originally for his, for his son-in-law. But ultimately, there were, there were two guys that worked for me that were amazing, still are amazing. They were from Poland. They were the only ones throughout this decade-long run I had of running this business and building. They were the only ones that would show up for work before me, stay later than me. They were just all business. I said, guys, today's your lucky day. You guys are buying this business. You're paying me overtime. You just made your, you know, you just made your bones. And so I sold them the business. They paid me over time. They're since multi-multi-millionaires. They've come from Poland. And I packed up and I went to Wall Street. I knocked on a lot of doors and found a job. I'll let you speak because I just it probably exhausted you, but but that's that's how I got to Wall Street. No, I mean that's that's an incredible uh start to the story. And and obviously like you know, one theme to pull out of that is just your persistence with the Cornell thing, right? Like, you know, you, you just kept going at it. And so by the time you did, you got accepted. Were all those, did all those credits count that you were doing three credit, uh, you know, kind of classes and you probably what had like only like a year or two left once you got there. So funny you asked that. I, I, I was very concerned about graduating on time. It was almost, it was almost like I didn't want anybody to know. There I was going to school. I didn't want anybody to know I wasn't really going to school, even though I was. And I didn't know how it was all going to play out. And so come last semester, the final semester, for me to graduate on time, I, I needed to do a double double work, just shy of a double workload, two semesters in one. And I ended up making Dean's List, which, again, I'm not patting my, like, I'm not saying anything special because I'm not that smart. But by then I had learned how to study. By then I had learned, I, it was a simple system that I didn't know for most of my life. And anybody listening that's in school or has kids in school, it's such a simple system. Somebody along the way told me, take notes in class. The professor is going to focus on things they're going to test you on. When you go home, rewrite those notes very cleanly in a new book, new notebook. 
By doing that, you're going from short-term memory to long-term memory. Anything that doesn't make sense, review it right then. And just by doing that, it changed the game for me in school. So I was able to do a double workload, graduate on time, and then head right, right back to Queens. And then you got to Wall Street and... You know, I'm, I'm an Ivy League guy as well. So a lot of my buddies got to Wall Street. My brother's been on Wall Street for like 15 years. Um, I guess, how did you go from knowing no one to kind of standing up your own trading firm? So I knocked on a lot of doors. And oddly enough, I have a podcast. And two weeks ago, I interviewed somebody on my podcast. And about halfway through that interview, I realized, oh, my God. This was my original boss on Wall Street. He was the big <laughs> boss. He, he, I didn't figure it out till halfway through. I was like, wait a minute, Ed, I worked for you. You were the first. So, so I, I knocked on a lot of doors. I finally got hired. They didn't really know what to do with me. I like to work hard. I like to figure things out. I am persistent. And I got very lucky in that I bounced around this firm learning a little bit about trading, learning a little bit about the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, learning a little bit about technology, learning a little bit about uh, the back office, um, writing research reports. And so I learned the whole business in about a year and a half. At that point in time, my mom had a second bout of cancer. And so I took a leave of absence and I went and stayed with her in Quebec for about a month and a half we spent together and then she died. And at that point I thought, well, I guess my Wall Street thing is over. And I think maybe a month after she died, I thought, you know what? Oh, the guy I had on the podcast, that first job I had, he during that during the time my mom died, he sold that firm for $600 million. And I thought I could do this. Like I know the whole business. I got, sometimes if you know too much, if, if I had gone right from college to a proper training program and been indoctrinated in that business, I might have known too much and talked myself out of what I'm saying right now. But I didn't, I didn't know enough, but I thought I did. And so I took a chance and I went and I spun out and started a firm. And it didn't work right away. But then I leaned in and randomly a guy from Cornell, had I not gone to school, randomly a guy from Cornell who happened to be at Credit Suisse First Boston, you know, made my whole life again. I, all these people I bumped into made my life. Called me. His trader happened to be out, gave us an order on our trading desk. And then from there, it just took off, just became a thing. And how long were you doing that? until you bumped to Vermont? I ran that business, let's call it from 1995, 2005, I sold that firm. But in 2001, my wife and I bought our farm in Vermont. So from 2001 to 2005, I was driving from Vermont. My wife was in Vermont and I was going back and forth to Wall Street. 2005, I was fully out of Wall Street physically. I was living in Vermont. And then as I was building this business, Spartan, I still had a little trading business going on in Vermont up until 2010. 2010, I completely unplugged. So I, so I did that for 15 years. And, and then I was fully Spartan. And 
where did that initial thought for Spartan come from? I know Bear and I were having a good laugh as we read through your bio about an instance in Quebec, it sounded like, where you got stranded during a race and kind of had a life or death situation. Was was that, I think in that article, it actually mentions that that's kind of what spawned Spartan. Is, is that true? And can you give us some detail into that story itself? Because I think that's that's a fascinating story. And then to what what thought led you to actually uh, pursue the Spartan uh, as so midnight mid nineties on that on that trading desk, mid to late nineties. I needed a I needed a an escape route. I needed a, a a pressure relief valve, and a lot of people will go drinking. A lot of people play golf, and I I started thinking about all those lessons from my mother. I started thinking about that three thousand plus mile run, all these crazy things. And I met a guy, God, I met a guy who said, let's go do this adventure race. And I went and did it and I fell in love with it. And I said, I got to do something even harder. What's harder than this? And he said, well, you could do a 24 hour race, but you got to really be trained for that. You've got, and I said, sign me up. We're doing 24 hours. And after 24, I said, what's harder than this? Had you, had you well, been an athlete? Were you an athlete at this point? Had you been doing like endurance stuff le leading up to that? You know, I would I would say I was never an athlete, but when I think back to somebody recently sent me a newspaper clipping when I lived in Ithaca at 13 years old, I completely forgot about it. I used to race BMX, little BMX bikes. We all did, right, as kids. And I wanted to go to this race, and my mother did not want to drive, and my, my friend's parents did not want to drive, but I was... I was a maniac. If I wanted something, I did not let go of it. And so I convinced my friends we were going to bike to the race, wake up super early and bike there. Not really understanding how far it was, how fast the BMX bike goes in one gear. And we biked 75 miles to green New York to race in this with our big helmets. And then we biked back 150 miles round trip. And it was written up in the newspaper back, it had to be like 1982. Somebody recently sent it to me. So I wasn't really an athlete. I wasn't classically trained in gymnastics or hockey or football or anything, but, but I just didn't quit at things. You know, I skied a little bit and, and I would get to the ski resort two hours before they opened. I'd have my mother drop me off and I would hike up the mountain, carrying my skis to get a few runs in before the, the lifts actually opened. So I was a little bit of a nut around stuff like that. And I don't think anything scared me as far as endurance goes. I had seen, don't forget, a 3,000 plus mile foot race at, at a very young age, right? So anything in my mind was possible. And so when I finished that 24 hour race, I felt so alive and so good that I said, what's tougher than this? And they said to me, well, the toughest race in the world is the Iditarod by foot. Sign me up. We're going to do it. And and I didn't like, I learned very early on in life, I didn't like to think about things or plan them. I just, I believed in this thing I called fire ready aim. If I just took a shot and I committed to it, I would figure it out on the way. As opposed to sitting around and if I sat around and thought about investing in that stock with that guy that customer of mine, I, I, I might not have done it. If I sat around and thought about going to, I might not have done it. 
I, I would have laid out all the pros, all the cons. I would have talked myself out of it. And so I, in life, it had served me well up till then to just say, let's do it and we'll figure it out as we go. We'll build the plane as we're flying. And so, so that led me to all these crazy races and, and my, my friends who were much more experienced at this crazy stuff at the time, talked me into doing a race called the Yucatec in Northern Quebec to get ready for the Iditarod. We were just gonna go knock out the Yucatec, super simple, check it off the box, go win the thing. And then we were headed to Alaska now, for the Iditarod. Super simple, but correct me if I'm wrong. Is this a 350 mile race? Yeah, but but again, <laughs> I didn't Joe, dive that ain't in. super simple, but I, I mean, is that, is, is that a casual race for you, Joe? 350 it miles? Wasn't a, I, I was being facetious because <laughs> I didn't, I had never done anything that long, okay. but, but I, as it was described to me, as this is going to be, we're just going to check this out, but we're going to go win it, knock it out. It'll get us ready. So they did a rod. Well, we get up there and it's like 30 below at the starting line. <laughs> and, and they're telling me that I've got to put crampons on my feet and duct tape them because we're going to be crossing the St. Lawrence River, which is in full flow with giant chunks of ice smashing down the river, the size of Volkswagens. And we are gonna cross the river in these boats that have outriggers on them. And every time we smash into ice or the ice smashes into us, we could run with the spikes on our feet across the ice to get to the other side. So I'm, I'm definitely out of my element, right? Like, but the gun goes off. And I've got footage of it and we start running and we're in the water and we fall in the water multiple times. And it is effing cold. I mean, you can imagine it's cold out. It's 30 minus 30 out in the water. Like it's a disaster right from the other side of the river. We're on bicycles. We're doing, you know, 20 miles an hour on these bikes. We're freezing. And this went on for days, days. And we found ourselves in a hiking portion of the race, climbing a mountain. I don't know, 15 plus hours. I was completely hallucinating, had never hallucinated like this before. All these people that talk about ayahuasca, all this nonsense, they really just need to go do a hundred mile run or do any of these crazy things. If you want full blown you know, rewiring of your brain, you know, outer body experiences, you just got to do this crazy shit. You don't, I, I almost feel like the other stuff is just superficial. And so I'm seeing my family, my grandfather is no longer living, my mom, on the mountain as we're climbing this like i don't even understand why they're there but that's how that's how in depth my my hallucinations are we finally get to the top of the mountain we're in second place and the team ahead of us is very experienced and they are rappelling down 1500 plus plus feet of this of this rock face on this mountain completely surrounded by snow and wind and and we're, we're just making a little bit of a shelter up there if we can, while we wait for these the team in front of us to, to rappel down these ropes. We've got to wait for them. Well, as they're rappelling down, thank God they had a ton of experience. They feel the rope is loose two or 300 feet into this rappel. It's not attached. The, the, the bottom part of the rope is not attached to the mountain where you would then unclip, get on the next rope and rappel. And they and thank God they break there and they're stuck on the side of this mountain, one in the morning, 
hanging, waiting for somebody to get them to the other rope. And so that means we're stuck on top of the mountain, a full blizzard, freezing, because now we, you know, we've, we've spent all that energy hiking up the mountain. You end up sweating when you're doing work like that. And we're stuck with, you know, completely exposed. By five in the morning, we decide with the race director, we're going to have to hike it out. We're not, we're not going to be able to use these ropes. And so I get the bright idea that rather than hike the trail down, we got to make up some time. We'll just, we'll just bang a left and, and just go down that, I don't know, that deep snow. We'll just work our way down. Well, it turns out that deep snow, you know, in places is waist deep. There's cliffs you fall off of, right? We, we don't have a good visual of what we're about to go down. It's not, you can't really see it on the map. And we're all exhausted. And we find ourselves in a really difficult situation. There are moments when I'm hanging off a branch. My teammate has to come over, lend me their, their snowshoes so that I can pull myself back up. We had to borrow ourselves into snow to gain shelter for a long period of time. When we finally got off that mountain and we got down and we looked up, and it's hard to describe this to anybody, but imagine looking up at a mountain that you just came down and you see a tiny sliver in the center of the mountain that's the rock face that you would have repelled off of and and there's snow on either side right had we had we taken a left or a right in our in our way down we would have been dead right because because it was all it was rock face to the left and to the right of the snow we came down so you know after that whole experience it was so um scary it was so refreshing. It was so life-changing that I thought, I got to turn this into a business. I got to make this my way of life. Going back and sitting on a trading desk just doesn't feel like, like where I should be. So that was, that was the aha moment right in there. And in that moment, did you realize that there's something that a human being gets from extreme discomfort that becomes valuable, like as, as a form of, in a sick sort of way, happiness in other parts of your life. Is that, is that the gist of it? You, you test your limits, you get that close to the line that in that moment you feel very alive. And I can relate to that. There's been a few instances in my life I've been at that line. And when you live, you know, in that world for a little bit, it does, you kind of see everything through a different lens after that. Is that kind of when you had that aha moment, is that kind of what it was all about? Yeah, I, I didn't know the science of it. I didn't go deep in my head with why, but I knew that when I did these things, I felt great. All of life's challenges, all of the things that I was sweating nervous about playing over and over in my head, they went away. I just wanted water, food and shelter. And I just felt really, really great. Now, fast forward, you know, 25 years later, 28 years later, I think I figured it out. We have all been taught to chase things. That's what keeps this machine going. We want a nicer car. We want a nicer mate. We want a bigger business. Whatever those things are, we are chasing. 
and we're chasing them because they're going to bring us happiness. The reality is they don't because you never get, when you get there, you need more and you need more and you need more. And I was becoming incredibly happy and incredibly content because I was going in the opposite direction. I was taking stuff away from my life. And when I took stuff away from my life, when I got to a place where I just wanted water, food, and shelter, well, when I got water, food, and shelter, and it didn't mean, it didn't matter what kind of food, it didn't matter, it could be dirty water, and it could be sleeping on a cold floor. I remember sleeping on rocks one day and using a boulder as a pillow and saying, this is the best bed I've ever slept on. I remember sleeping in the rain in a tremendous cold downpour and thinking this is awesome because I was that tired. And so when you take things away from your life, again, this took me 25 years to decipher in my own head, but then you put them back, you become incredibly appreciative of them. When you have them and they're available to you, like we all have now, climate control, food on demand, we get anything we want, Wi-Fi, we don't appreciate it. So we're chasing the next thing and chasing the next thing. We just don't appreciate people that have everything appreciate nothing. People that have nothing appreciate everything. So yes, is the answer. And Joe, like how do we just as, as people get better at not falling victim to that? Because I was actually thinking about this exact thing yesterday and you kind of hit the nail on the head is as your lifestyle upgrades, that just becomes the new norm and it doesn't necessarily render any additional happiness, right? Like, so if you, if you go from flying coach to first class after the first couple of times, first class is now just the standard, right? It's not this really cool exclusive thing. Um, if you upgrade just other aspects of your lifestyle after a minute, it doesn't, it doesn't give you anything new. And then, like you said, you're chasing the next rung on the ladder. Um, and it's, it's almost like you're never going to get there. So I guess what can we do? to not, you know, fall into that pattern. And, and I self-reflect on that quite a bit for myself because I find myself falling into that pattern with my lifestyle. You know what I mean? Some things that 10 years ago I would have done anything for and now to me is just assumed um, and I fought really hard for that, but now I don't really cherish it as much as I would have 10 years ago had I told myself, hey, in 10 years, you're going to have X, Y, Z, you know? I think, I mean, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm doing a late night Ginzu knife pitch to you guys, but like, <laughs> I think, I think you got to go out and do something hard, really hard. Not, I can't even achieve hard. When I say hard, I can't, I, my daily workout has changed over the years. There, there were two, three years I carried a heavy kettlebell and a, and a sandbag everywhere. Uh, in addition to my work, there were days, years I just did 300 burpees every morning. My latest workout is I, I, I knock out now three and a half miles in the morning, slow run. I knock out 10 rounds of push-ups, pull-ups, and lunges. And then I do 300 calories on the Airdyne bike. It's a, it's a decent, that's a decent workout. Like people would say, okay, that's a, like every day, right? If I'm traveling, I, I modify it a bit, but, but even that is not enough to flip the switch I'm talking about. You need to go out and do something really hard where you're exhausted, you're starving, you're dehydrated, and you just want to quit. Like when you get there, then you're in the zone to start understanding that all this stuff we're chasing is ridiculous. But until you get there, until you get there, you're going to keep chasing the things we all chase. 
So until you feel how we used to have a tagline at the, at the beginning of our um, development of our organization, we said, you'll know at the finish line. And no one could make sense of it because they had not done. But when I was standing at the finish line this weekend in Vermont, I talked to a few hundred people as they came through. I had one woman just start crying, you know, because she knows at the finish, we know when we do something really hard. So I would challenge anybody that's out there saying like, how, how do I, how do I reframe my life? You got to go do something really hard. I mean, that's, that's why we put on all these crazy events because they, they are that power. Look, I have a podcast too. A podcast doesn't do it. A book doesn't do it. A movie doesn't do it. A class doesn't do it. You have to go out and suffer. Joe, do you feel like when you, it kind of popped up when you mentioned kind of delayering and that, that having less actually led to higher happiness, did that, did that allow you to relate to kind of the exploration your mother was doing as far as like the meditation and the yoga? Because although very different that one is more of a approaching hard things from an external uh, perspective, it does, it, it did almost sound like in that moment, it's like, hey, like almost monk-like in a sense that they're exploring the inner world kind of with that same tenacity. Can you, do, do you see parallels there? Cause that, that did when you said like, when, when we were talking through that less is more and, and exploring that, that kind of dynamic, does, is that something, have you felt you can relate to kind of some things you were exposed to as a teenager that you kind of scoffed at then? And now, now maybe you look back with a, with a different perspective. There's no doubt about it. I, I seek, I seek mon monks and monasteries all over the world. We've put races on with monks and, you know, I, I think about all those friends I, I had when I was younger that are in jail still. And how simple their life is, as crazy as that sounds, that I'm, I'm not promoting people do bad things to go to jail, but like, think about how simple that life is. As long as you're not locked up in solitary confinement, right? As long as you've got a few amenities, you got your food, you read your books, <laughs> super simple life. So I'm really attracted to that. Yet my life is incredibly complex. It's not ex it's not anything like what I'm describing. And yeah, I came I came around to my mother's way of thinking. Every my mom took it to a really extreme level. I didn't understand it at the time. Imagine that 3000 plus mile foot race. Imagine, you know, I remember her fasting and meditating for 30 days straight. Like she was hardcore hardcore so yeah i started i started practicing yoga i started i started doing it all well yeah it's 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 almost the difference between and and you can insert any crunchy word you want here but the mind always wants more that it, it wants more it feeds off more and even when it gets more it just wants more after that whereas as you de-layer the mind and you can kind of carve through that and that's like that's like the the warrior archetype. That's the yogic archetype that the soul, the essence of what it means to be human, when you can sink into that, that's a completely different feeling than what the mind energy is. And that's, it sounds like even, even on the side of that mountain that you may have tapped into that when, when the ego or the mind is no longer in control, that there may be an essence there that comes forth that feels much more natural and much more grounded than the mind does of just wanting more. What can I do more? What can I have more, eat more, uh, consume more? So yeah, that's a super, super interesting thing that it, it feels like you've experienced firsthand. And then now you you have people experiencing that uh, with Spartan as well. 
But let's put a, a fine point on it. I love the ancient samurai used to have a ritual every night before bed. They would close their eyes and they would burn all their possessions in their family in their mind. So they had nothing when they went to bed. And when they woke up, as the next day started to un, you know, um, come to be, and they saw their family again, and they saw their possessions, they, they loved it all because last night they had nothing. They appreciated it. So there, there really is something special to removing stuff from your life. The great Stoics, Seneca, he was an advisor to Nero. He was the wealthiest guy on the planet at that time. He used to go live like a bum every once in a while out in the street, sleep on the floor. Again, taking everything away from his life so he appreciated what he had. So it's not a, it's not a crazy idea if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast and you need a little taste of it, it's on me. I, I, I certainly don't do it for money because there's lots of easier ways to make money. Uh, I'm happy to help anybody out there change their life. That's how I get paid. And I think that has to, that's the secret sauce of Spartan, right? Is, is you, you realize that this is something truly unique and there's a, a psychological effect when you when you and i totally know what you're talking about you finish that race you have that sense of accomplishment but in the middle of that you had hardship and you a lot of people i bet do your race and there is regret immediately and you know and, and by that should be kind of by design isn't that's kind of the whole point right you you second guess what, what did i just sign up for <laughs> but you're you know hopefully with some people that you you know what i mean that you push each other and you get it done um, and then at the end, you're like, I'm glad I stuck it out. And you have that kind of euphoric feeling of accomplishment. Um, so, so you were able to kind of harness that and, and obviously launch a wildly successful business in, in global brand. Um, I, I want to ask a, uh, a question about mental toughness. Um, you know, some of you probably caught the intro, but uh, Joe did 14 Ironmans in a single year. And then in a seven day period, that Vermont 100, the 135 mile uh, bad water, as well as an Ironman to, to cap it off. So obviously, you know, Joe, you, you, you know, kind of downplayed it a little bit, but you are someone that whether it was by design or you just winged it and figured it out. And like you said, you know, kind of built the plane in the air. What are some things that you do for mental toughness and, and that kind of that inner voice? Because, you know, I've been there too. And I would imagine and when you're at mile 120 of 135 mile race and you have an Ironman in 24 hours after that or whatever the order was, that inner voice, everyone's human. They have to maybe have that voice of second guessing. And how do you, I guess, get that voice out of your head to push through? Um, and uh, I guess what advice would you have for people that are trying to do anything extreme or not extreme that's going to be very difficult to, to um, not let that voice win? Because sometimes it can be very powerful in convincing uh, you otherwise. And, you know, example I gave is I would, you know, went through some pretty crazy military training and, uh, you know, they, they got us from little over 200 down to 19 guys in, in, in three weeks. And all that was, was that inner voice. Everyone was physically capable. We all were, you know what I mean? A bunch of really good athletes, some not great athletes that made it. So all it came down to was that inner voice and the, the people that were able to deal with that appropriately made it. And the people that the inner voice got too strong didn't. So what, what advice do you have for people on, on that front? Well, I think it's important to know where that voice is coming from. And what I didn't know, although I suspected at a young age, maybe my mom said it and I didn't remember her saying it, was that we are wired 
to avoid discomfort. So more than sex, drug, rock, you know, drugs, rock and roll, like we are number one. The thing we chase more than anything is the avoidance of discomfort. And the reason that is, is our brains had to keep us alive on this planet for all these years. And so it protected us from expending energy, from ending up out in the desert, shriveling up, falling off a cliff. So it's constantly afraid and pulling us back from doing anything uncomfortable. So that's what the voice is. You just need to know that's your you know, basic programming. And it's going to come up whether you're a amazing veteran, you know, whatever, whatever it is you do, that voice is coming to be, you're going to have to listen to it and have a conversation with it. Once I understood that from the psychologists, from the biologists, from everybody I spoke to, it became a much easier conversation internally. And then I found out after all these years, if you go public, you have to make the outcome worse than what your brain is saying to you. So if I don't finish this thing, I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to have regret. I'm going to feel pain, whatever. That has to be a worse outcome than doing the thing. Working out this morning. I just got done doing a race this weekend. I just flew in at midnight last night. I'm exhausted. I'm up at five in the morning. I don't feel like working out, but I know that if I don't do it, I'm going to feel worse all day because I've been doing this for a long time, 40 plus years. So the outcome has got to be worse doing it than not doing it. Not finishing the 100 miler, the 135, has got to be worse. But I had to drop out of a race to know that. I was in a race somewhere in the Southeast years ago. My knee was bothering me. It was the perfect excuse. I tapped out. I went into the hotel room. I felt like a million bucks. I took a shower. I ordered a burger. I watched TV. And after about four or five hours, I was like, this is terrible. Everybody's still out there racing. And I'm sitting in this frigging hotel room. Turned out my knee was okay. It was just an excuse. I never wanted to feel that again. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And we, we, you know, Tony and I were talking about this. In, in a previous episode talking about burning the boats and, you know, the idea that you eliminate any off ramp or any alternative to the task at hand and you go all in on it. Um, and even, you know, we were throwing around the analogy of like a, a prisoner of war in Vietnam, right? Like the, the, the reason they were able to endure three to five years of, um, you know, being a prisoner of war is just because there was no other alternative. That was just the reality and you just endured. That was it. Had there been a little bell you could ring to not be a POW anymore, of course, everyone would have done it. Um, so I think, you know, for these crazy races or any of these wild endeavors, um, you almost also need to have that approach. I definitely think, you know, thinking of what the the failure will look like is, is important, but also just eliminating that off-ramp of if, if it's even a possibility and almost ahead of time rehearsing that in your head um, that, uh, you know, because you know when those inner voices come, you're, you've already kind of spoken to it in your mind and you immediately, you know, cast it out and, and continue with the task. Um, but well, here, uh, here's the crazy thing there is every year we put on this crazy race on the farm in Vermont the death race and most people quit very much like your military experience. Most people tap out every year. I also put on a kid's death race. I call it death camp. 
terrible branding, but that's what I call it. Kids get, <laughs> I'm sure kids, the parents love it. <laughs> kids get excited about it. Like that's how, you know, I'm so tough. I'm going to death camp. <laughs> and the, the kid, what the kids go through over two or four weeks is arguably 40 times, 50 times tougher than what the adults go through in two days, three days. But very few, if any of the kids drop out, most of the adults drop out because they can, because they have a set of keys, because they got some excuse. The kids can't leave. They have no choice. They got to get it done. And they do. Joe, I want to ask you know? a, a specific, I want to dork out a little bit on like on recovery because you know the athlete in me wants to know all right when you're doing stacking these races back to back to back you know i i've recently got into the cold tubbing and saunaing and hot tub contrast and all that stuff um was there anything specific you were doing to recover in between races particularly when you had to do three in seven days um or were you just a mania i mean did you have this down where you had a protocol and um I guess, walk us through that. Um, how did you defeat the kind of physiological impacts that that many miles would do on the body? It's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you're asking. And, and this is the people that are going to listen to what I say are not going to buy into it for the very reason I discussed earlier, that our brains won't allow you to understand this. Our brains don't want you to do hard stuff, right? So years, years ago, I mean, again, my mom showing me this 3,100 mile foot race and quit like there's no recovery. You're running 50 miles, 60 miles every single day. So you see that maybe that's not optimal. You don't know. Fast forward. I'm racing all over the world. They're anywhere from six day to 14 day races, nonstop, very little sleep. And I'm noticing a few teams win them all. And at some, sometimes at the end of the race, I will sleep for 20 to 24 hours collapse and wake up a day later. That's how exhausted I am. But you look at the winning teams who do this for a living and are not running a Wall Street firm and their skin is clear and their eyes are blue and they're beautiful and fit and they don't have bags under their eyes. And you're like, what the hell? Like, how, how can this be? How do you guys live? And it turns out they're out hiking eight, 10 hours every single day. They're throwing weight on their back. They're climbing mountains. They just do it every single day. They eat clean. Then there's a study that comes out, probably late 90s, as I'm playing this all through in my head because I have the same question you have. Discovery Channel does this study where they're looking at these top teams, the very teams I'm talking about. And what they're finding is that the body is not breaking down during these 5, 10, 15-day periods. It's actually getting stronger. It's becoming more efficient. It has to or you die. I like to joke when I learned all that and I watched it unfold on my own. I like to joke and say, if the three of us were living 5,000 years ago and you got us to do legs today, we got some big boulders and we did you know, big squats for five, six hours and our legs were toast. And the next day, there were a bunch of antelope running across the prairie and we hadn't eaten in a couple of days, but we did legs yesterday. Would you say to me, oh, we can't go. We, you know, we did legs yesterday. We can't go eat. Can't run. No, you did what you had to do every day. The human body is made to survive, to fight through. I'm not suggesting, you know, seven, eight hours sleep isn't a good, I'm not, I'm not suggesting any of that. What I'm saying is we are so far from 
we're talking about recovery from recovery. <laughs> you know what I mean? Think about watch watch some of these movies where they're where they're showing you the building of the railroad across the United States. Look at that! Like you needed some recovery from that. Think about our life today. I need to recover because I sent a hundred emails. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's <laughs> a good point. So, so you're you're saying? I mean, I'm sure you had good nutrition and stuff like that, but you were just more of the mindset. I'm just going to overcome the physiological impacts and just and just get it done. And and obviously, I would imagine over time you were able to develop like a almost another level of endurance that was from a necessity that your body now seemed to think get reprogrammed that this human now needs this capability because this is just what this guy does, right? And that that goes back to probably our evolutionary biology. Yeah, I had, I, had a I had a system for it. I called it the sixth day, right? Like over seven days, my five days, I need to institutionalize this for everybody, but five days was whatever the workout is that you, you know, you're doing CrossFit, whatever the thing is you do, but those five days, at least 60 to 90 minutes, 80%. Take it to an eighty percent level. You're not you're not killing yourself, and then on the sixth day, you had to get some real volume in. The volume did not have to be at a fast pace. It just had to be volume. So so if I knew I was doing an Ironman on the sixth day, I had to get a two mile open water swim in. I had to get that done. I had to get a four or five hour bike ride, and it was conversational pace. I had to go on a big hike. If I knew I had a hundred miler coming up, I had to go out for eight, 10, 12 hours with 40, 50 pounds on my back. I had to. So as long as that sixth day had tremendous volume, it did. I learned from a, a Tour de France guy who was probably 96, 90, 1997. I was calculating everything in miles. And he said, don't worry about miles. Worry about time on legs, hours on that day. And the day you wake up on the seventh day and you could do again what you did on the sixth day, you're ready, right? So if you did a 12 or 14 hour day on day six and you and you were able to just sleep, shrug it off and get and do it again, you're ready, you're ready for your race. And that, com that comes as long as, you're, as long as you're doing that volume. Joe, I wanna ask about, um a little bit about the business and, and mainly because from the perspective of, you know, we started born primitive and I, I try to balance running this business and being, you know, very uh, ambitious towards it, but also balancing other aspects of my life. And we've, you know, for the most part, been focusing on your indi individual endeavors kind of as it pertains to this endurance stuff. But what we shouldn't forget is on the side, you built a, you know, multi-million maybe even with a b i don't know the financials of, of spartan but uh a wildly in one in a million success story um and, and as i understand you're the ceo so how did you go do all this and still balance running and standing up a, a crazy successful business um and, and were you able to balance it did you have kind of like a co-ceo or were you just you know that guy that's firing out emails two or three o'clock in the morning and then getting up and going to a 20 mile run at 5 a.m um I'm curious to know how how you've been able to do both so well. Well, I was fortunate that when we founded it, I was on the farm. And on the farm, very easy to wake up and go hike the mountain, no matter what the weather is. It definitely hardens you on that farm. You'd, you'd appreciate, anybody listening would appreciate the farm. It makes, it makes staying in shape much easier. 
so that was a, that was a win living that outdoor lifestyle 20 24/7 and then we had a great team definitely have <clears throat> some great upper management that have been around for a long time and run the day to day and so that helps because I am able to just turn off in the morning and get my workout done and and, and they do their thing but I'm always I'm, I'm switched on and I'm I'm always driving people nuts in those moments where I'm exercising I'm thinking about the business and then I integrate I don't I don't believe in work life balance I believe in work life integration if if I'm sitting down and all the moms are going to hate me for this right but if I'm sitting down at the dinner table I might be doing work because I got to get it done I know a bunch of people out there that'll say focus and they're going to hate me for saying this, but if I'm in a meeting, I'm listening to the meeting, but I'm also getting some work done. I have no choice. The, the volume of work that has to get done, it can't be compartmentalized that on this, these two hours, I do this, these two hours, I do that. Uh, the four hour work week is complete nonsense. I know Tim Ferriss, like it's just, it's not possible. I you just can't, there's, there's just no way to do that. I agree. So, um, I, I integrate family, fitness, and the business into one very messy 24 hours. And have there been moments, because I, I was very transparent about this with Building Born Primitive, where that kind of relentless pursuit can produce collateral damage in other aspects of your life. Um, has that occurred? And did you ever have to reel that in and say, okay, I kind of saw the line or maybe I crossed it? Um, and, or, or have you been able to successfully navigate that your whole life? Well, I'll tell you what, for most of the kid's life, my oldest is 17. My youngest is 11 for most of the kid's life lives. I've any day I was home, we did a workout together. So thousands of workouts together, non-negotiable. If I had to wake up earlier, whatever, if I was more tired, whatever it is, every single day that I was home, we did a workout together. My health and wellness, non-negotiable. I'm getting my workout in. I'm getting my cold shower done. Non-negotiable. Uh, business, non-negotiable. I, I got to, uh, business pays the bills. I got to take care of the business. So for sure, my wife has suffered in this deal because she, I mean, she, she just gets less, right? And the kids outside of that workout might not get a ton of attention from me because now I got the business the rest of the day that night. But, but I made sure every single day, if I was there, we were working out. We were spending that hour together, sweating together. Might not have been as exciting as going to see, you know, a play or a movie together with me, but they'll remember later in life. They'll say, I remember, I remember all those, those thousands of workouts together with dad. Yeah, and it's cool that you're able to kind of witness, you know, your, your, your kind of work ethic through fitness and, and doing it with them. Uh, Cause I think that's so important for the kids to see that um, and not just see accolades and accomplishments on a resume, but actually seeing you uh, doing your thing. Um, so that's really cool. Um, well, I think for, for me, Joe, I, I guess, I think the last question that I want to ask um, in regards to something you said earlier, you were talking about how you kind of were or a person that seemed to be willing just to play a lot of hands and, hey, we'll figure it out, but let's err on the side of taking a shot at it and we'll see what happens. And that's, that's I've kind of had the same belief in many of the things that I've pursued. And I think there's a lot of people that 
are right on the cusp of greatness and don't realize it and they're being timid and they're just there's there's they just need that little nudge to get them to take that chance um and maybe slide their chips in on something and 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 they just if they could see the other side of what that looks like and what it might become you know of course they'd be all in but they don't have that crystal ball so what advice would you give to people uh, who in their life are, are being held back by, you know, kind of their own mental limitations on, on any of their pursuits? Um, how do they rewire the brain to err on the side of taking risk and getting after it and going for it rather than taking the, the safe play of the status quo? Well, you got you, you to calculate what's the upside, what's the downside. What's the upside to me leaving this construction and swimming pool business and going to wall street. What's what could, what could go wrong? Well, okay. I don't make it on wall street and I come back and build a new business and construction and swimming. Like I know how to do that. Right. What's the upside and downside to marrying this woman? What's the upside and downside to having kids, whatever it is, starting this business. So, so I always look at the upside and downside and if you lay it out and you're unbiased about it, it's, Usually what's holding you back is what we spoke about earlier, which is that legacy hardware and software of our brain saying, oh, it's too uncomfortable. You can't do it. Let's do it. Let's do another couple of months of analysis. You can't do it. It's too risky. But when you when you really lay it out on a piece of paper, there's very few risks that are potentially fatal risks um, in our life. And so I, I would say I would say lay that out. And then I would say. I don't think we understand the power of consistency. It's kind of like putting money in the bank and getting a little interest in that compounds and compounds and compounds. I know that the president of Alibaba is a friend of mine and he and his brother both won gold medals in, in crew rowing. And I said, how was it? He goes, it was easy. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we decided we were going to have to train for seven years, seven days a week, seven hours a day. And as long as we did that, we could win gold. And so we did it. And so, you know, you do, you, you do what you got to do every single day. You don't see results for a while. It probably takes at least seven years. And then you wake up and you're somewhere you wanted to be. Damn. Love it. You got anything else? I might have one more alibi if, if you don't have anything. No, I, I just wanted to say thank you for your time. I think culturally with, with the boom in technology, cell phones, all, all things that I think over time will integrate and will be value adds to, to us as humans that – I think we're we're going through a shift though where we recognize the power in doing hard shit and and people like yourself that have been kind of pioneers for that. I mean, Spartan, that's literally what you do is is a huge part of I think exposing people to what we discussed earlier of like the the importance of both from the internal perspective of 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 exploring what it means to be human and consciousness to the actual then execution of that with with hard shit is there's like a renaissance happening and, and people like yourself, like I said, have been huge contributors to that. So, so thank you for that. I see, I see that space only growing. And I think that's super beneficial to, to us as humans. I'd like to offer your entire audience. They can come out and get a little like appetizer of our death race at the end of June in 2024 on the farm in Vermont. It's on me. They just have to commit to you that they want to do something hard. They don't have to do the whole thing. We'll, We'll set up a little uh, escape ramp for them. They could just do a section, get a taste of doing something hard. And, and so, what's the death race, Joe, for the for the viewers? So the death race is our craziest event, and it's meant you would understand that being from the military, 
it's meant to break you down and it's meant to get you to quit. We lie to you. We throw obstacles at you. We give you off ramps all in an effort so you can meet yourself and you could make that decision to take the other step or to drop out. So it, look, it's too much for people to, to go beginning to end. But last year I said, let's just give them a little appetizer. Let's get them out there for 12, 18 hours, you know, no pressure, but a lot of hard work. And yeah, it's on me. If anybody, anybody out there wants to come, we tied it into, we tied it into Norwich university, the oldest uh, private military school in the country. We tied it in. So, so it'll start at Norwich because we've had so many cadets come over and do it. And then it'll end on our farm. And Joe, what's the attrition rate if you wanted to do it from start to finish? What percent make it? I'm just curious. Eight, eight percent, seven percent. Hell yeah. Love that. Now, now I'm intrigued. Maybe. <laughs> um, right, last question for me, Joe, a, a man that comes with many accomplishments. What's on the horizon for you? What's the next ridge line? I've just got to get us completely um, to the back to the top of the mountain coming out of COVID. We were shut down. We went through absolute hell, completely surrounded by the enemy, out of ammunition. <laughs> just one, one of those deals. So I think by March 2024, we're fully operational again. Races are full and like I can't even believe what's going on, which is great. But I have a tremendous financial hangover from being shut down for that period. Epic. Well, Joe, we can't thank you enough for for uh, spreading some knowledge. Incredible story. Hopefully that, you know, I think the main point and theme to extract from this is do hard shit. Uh, put yourself out there. And I think right at the brink of failure is where the magic happens. And, and, and Joe, obviously you have put yourself through the ringer and been able to experience that, uh, you know, firsthand. So uh, thank you again for joining the Born Printed Podcast. Don't be a stranger. If there's anything we can do on our end to support what you're doing in any capacity, Joe, please don't hesitate to reach out. And uh, we'll maybe we'll see you uh, up there in, in next June uh, for that death race. I'd love to have you out there. Let's do it. Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joe. We appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, guys.